Amen. You may be seated. And as you're taking your seats, if you turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Samuel, namely 1 Samuel, and particularly 1 Samuel chapter 14. Faith. What does real faith look like in a real fallen world? What does it look like? I read this past week a story of a minister story of a minister and a distraught mother and that mother's dying son. The minister was there with the dying son and his mother and he was praying. He was praying fervently. And the minister was praying something along these lines. Almighty and merciful Father, glorious Lord, if it be Thy will, spare this child. If it be thy will, spare this child. And at that point in his prayer, the mother, the distraught and wretched mother, stopped him mid-prayer, moaning, and substituted a different line. It must be God's will. I will have no ifs. The child, to the surprise of many, survived. He recovered. The Lord gave the mother what she demanded. But that son would go on to live to break his mother's heart. And the terrible crimes that he would commit would lead him to be publicly executed at the age of 22. There's a difference between pleading boldly before the throne of grace and demanding audaciously. Some would say, name it, claim it, it's yours. That's the stuff of real faith. That's what real faith looks like. But my question is, does it? Does real, God-given faith Look that way. Well, it certainly doesn't if Jonathan's faith, son of Saul, Jonathan, if, it's, if his faith is any indication of what real faith looks like. That's our story today. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word, beginning with verse 1. One day, remember the context. Remember the darkness. Remember Samuel having fled the scene. Remember the Philistines, this this terrible foe. Remember what the Israelites lacked. They had two swords. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, in the pomegranate cave at Migron, or under a pomegranate tree. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, son of Ahitu, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people didn't know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, 
there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, literally slippery. And the name of the other was Sine, or, or thorny. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. And Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we'll cross over to the men, and we'll show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we'll stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we'll go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan, his armor-bearer, and said, Come up to us and we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, a half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. And the garrison, even the raiders, trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who's gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priests, Withdraw your hand. And then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who, were, who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth. Haven. The Word of God for the people of God. I want to say three things. Imagine that a pastor wants you to say three things. Three things about the faith, the real faith of Jonathan. The first thing I want you to see this morning with me is real faith is often seen best against the backdrop of dark circumstances. Real God-given faith is seen oftentimes best against the backdrop of dark circumstances. Think about your jeweler. Maybe, maybe you don't have a jeweler. I don't have a jeweler. But imagine a jeweler. And you go to the jeweler and you say, let me see your best diamond. 
And the jeweler goes and gets his diamond, but before he shows that diamond to you, he lays on the counter a black cloth. And then he puts the diamond on that black cloth, and the lights are shining on it. It's glorious. It's beautiful. So is real faith. Real faith is seen best against the backdrop of dark circumstances. What dark circumstances do we have here? Well, first of all, as I mentioned earlier, we have Samuel who's fled the scene, right? Why had he fled? Because Saul would not wait for him to come. Saul would not wait for the word of the Lord to be spoken. Saul took matters into his own hands. And when he wouldn't wait on the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord left him. There was a famine, a famine of the word. In that day. Now, we don't necessarily have a famine for a lack of food. We've got a complete Bible at our disposal. This is God's glorious gift to us. We have the completed Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament. We have it at our fingertips. You've got it on your phones, on your computer. You've got it in a printed form, probably multiple printed forms. We don't have a famine for a lack of food. If we do have a famine, we have it because of a lack of appetite. A lack of appetite. Do we long for this word? There were few in Israel who longed for the word of Samuel in that day. The word of the Lord spoken through Samuel. That's part of the darkness. There's, a, there's another aspect of the darkness in which we see Jonathan's beautiful faith, his real faith. And that darkness is the failed leadership within the covenant community. Verses 2 and 3, did you notice? Saul, as he was apt, Saul's not one who goes off to do things. He, he holds back. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, in the pomegranate cave or on a pomegranate tree. Saul, who's dynasty had been rejected sitting there. But he's not sitting there alone. Somebody else is sitting there. Ahijah, whose priestly line had been rejected. He is seated there. The kingship that had been rejected. The priestly line that had been rejected. Those two men representing those two things would be of really no help to Jonathan initially, would they? Failed leadership in the covenant community. Failed leadership where leadership was needed. Does that happen in our day? Absolutely. Absolutely. And if that weren't bad enough, we have the seemingly unstoppable foe of the Philistines on inhospitable turf. We got the Philistines. They were basically in the Iron Age. And Israel is facing them basically from the Stone Age. Israel, we're told, has what? Two swords. And the Philistines have all the weapons that are worth much. 600 Israelites. And if that's not bad enough, dark enough, Jonathan decides that he's going to go attack the garrison, and he, boy, he picks a really nice place to try to do it. 
He's, he's in these crags. One called Slippery. That, that doesn't give me much confidence. One called Thorny. That doesn't give me much confidence either. The church oftentimes finds itself confronting what seems to be an unstoppable foe on very inhospitable turf. I think of the church in China. Weak, seemingly. Frail, seemingly. An unstoppable foe at them constantly on inhospitable turf. And the church in China does what? It prevails. It perseveres. And the gates of hell will not stand against it. I think of the church in Burkina Faso being attacked regularly by a seemingly unstoppable foe on inhospitable turf. And yet, those brothers and sisters, their faith against that back, that black backdrop, their faith is what? Beautiful. Second thing I want you to see here in our text is Jonathan's faith not only is against the backdrop of darkness, but Jonathan's real faith counters worldly thinking with daring and holy confidence. Real faith counters worldly thinking with daring and holy confidence. Verse 6 is an amazing, amazing verse. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan's got this great confidence. Not in himself, right? Not in his cleverness, right? Not in his power, right? Not in his military strength. No, Jonathan's confidence is in Yahweh. The Lord of the covenant. Jonathan doesn't look around at his circumstances. He doesn't look at that dark cloth, does he? He doesn't look at the circumstances. He looks to his God. He looks to his God. The circumstances are bleak, but Yahweh is Yahweh. God is God. And He's all-powerful, and He's all-merciful, and He's righteous, and He's holy, and He's glorious. And Jonathan doesn't look at the circumstances. He looks at God. Real faith starts with the all-powerful God of salvation. The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, I am that I am. That was Jonathan's God, and that's the one to whom he was turning. And because he was putting his confidence in him, he could be what? Daring. And he could go down the crags, or between the crags of, of, of slippery and thorny. With just him and his armor bearer, ready to attack a garrison of Philistines. What boldness. What a beautiful faith. The third thing I want you to see though, and lastly, it's this. Jonathan's faith and real faith reveals itself in humble submission. A humble submission which never diminishes its holy confidence. 
a humble submission which never will diminish its holy confidence. Again, verse 6. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be. Or maybe your translation says, perhaps. Perhaps. Perhaps the Lord will work salvation for us. For nothing can hinder, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or few, maybe even two. It may be, perhaps. Brothers and sisters, real faith is not arrogance. Real faith doesn't dictate to God. God is not our errand boy. God's not the celestial bellhop that all you have to do is ring the buzzer and He comes running to do your bidding. God, Yahweh, is not your gopher. It's not leaves. Real faith confesses not only the power of God, but real faith confesses the sovereign freedom of God to do as He wills. Real faith freely admits ignorance of all the details of God's eternal plan. God has decreed all things. And we know ultimately that, what that means, but we don't know all the details, do we? We don't know exactly how it all folds out on our pers- in our personal lives, the lives of our family, the lives of our church community, the lives of our community, our nation, etc., etc. We don't know all those details. And real faith humbly acknowledges that ignorance. But, as one commentator puts it, that does not cancel, but enhances real faith's excitement. Yeah, I don't know exactly how God may do all things. Guess what? I bet you He's going to do something fabulous. Something amazing. Who knows what this omnipotent God may be delighted to do against these uncircumcised Philistines. So let's go. Let's go. Confidence is not in us, it's in Him. He'll do what He wants, but what He does will be glorious. And what did God choose to do? Verse 23. The Lord, Yahweh, saved Israel that day. It's two men. Two men who got at least one sword and evidently a staff or a stick and took out 20 men. And the whole Philistine garrison goes into an uproar and everything just goes crazy to the point that what? They're using their swords against one another. That's real faith, brothers and sisters. That's real faith. Beautiful against the black backdrop of, of the dark black 
circumstances. Real faith with daring, holy confidence. Real faith with humble submission to the will of God. Then the question is, inevitably, right? Do I have real faith? Do you have real faith? Do we have that type of faith? Daring to get humble. Confident. And Lord, it's submissive. Do you? Let that hang there for a moment. Do you? I'm not so sure my faith is like that of Jonathan's. And I have so much more to base my faith upon. So much more. How about you? Do you have that type of faith? There's no doubt a black cloth upon which your life is laid. There was someone else whose life was laid against a dark backdrop. Don't you think with me? Back to the upper room. Jesus ministering to His disciples. Getting down and washing their feet. Instituting this meal that we call the Lord's Supper. Teaching them giving them that new commandment. They sang a hymn. And they went out into the what? Darkness. Jesus had before Him virtually all of Jerusalem, all of Rome, and every single evil force there is in the universe aligned against Him. And yet there's faith shown beautifully. He, he went out with holy confidence. Go to, go to Luke with me. Just struck by just a few details. In, in, in Luke, first of all, chapter 22. Jesus has just foretold Peter's denial. Some interesting words here. Never had noticed them before in this way. Verse 38, chapter 22. Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. It's enough. It's enough. Because he had already told them, chapter 18, 
verse 31 through 33. Those two swords are plenty enough for the sovereign Lord of the universe. Those two swords are plenty enough for Messiah Jesus. Because Messiah Jesus says, and taking the twelve, He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging Him, they will kill Him. And on the third day, He will rise. For Christ is risen. This Christ has this glorious faith that has this amazing, holy confidence about it. Please also remember one whose faith was humbly submissive to the will of his Father. Chapter 22 again, Luke 22. Verse 39, And Jesus came out and went, as was His custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed Him. And when He came to the place, He said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And He withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And He knelt down and He prayed, saying, Father, perhaps, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Against the backdrop, the black backdrop of all spiritual forces of evil, of virtually all of Rome and virtually all of Jerusalem coming against Him against the even darker backdrop of all the holy and just wrath of God which you and I deserve about to be poured out upon Him. His real faith was daringly confident and humbly submissive to the will of His Father If your faith is weak, if your faith is faltering, if your faith is anemic, His never was. And brothers and sisters, yes, you are to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but you know what? You do not trust in your faith. You trust in the faith and the work of Jesus. And His faith is perfect. So what are you called to do? When you know your faith's not daring enough, and you know your faith's not humble enough. Stop looking to your faith, and look to His. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Apart from You, we are nothing. Apart from Your glorious, sovereign grace, O triune God, we would rest in our own strength. 
we would rest in what we think is a good faith, and yet all we would deserve would be your wrath and displeasure. So enable us to, in faith, a God-given faith, look not to our own, but to the faith of Jesus. May we look to you with the eyes of faith, not only this day, but all of our days. And as we leave this place, going between the crags of slippery and thorny, may we go forth in confidence, submitting ourselves to your glorious will, knowing that you are working out your holy purposes. For we know this because of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.